All right, we'll get started here. Good to see y'all tonight. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, me too. It didn't get as bad as uh they was they were thinking, so we uh praise the Lord for that. I don't know how it was in other parts of the state. All right, tonight we're gonna uh try to finish up the last three chapters of Deuteronomy. Uh we're gonna cover the Song of Moses in in chunks then looking at death of Moses and then chapter 33 is basically the uh, final blessings on Israel we're gonna um, you know look at those in passing and then uh, chapter 34 is the death of Moses if we don't get through all this tonight then we'll finish uh, next week because I'm not uh, committed to like a schedule uh, so to speak. So let's let's pray. We're gonna pray for also Miss Delois, her leg, and also pray for uh, Brother Harvey and the procedure that he's gonna have to get done. So and uh, ask the Lord to bless our town together. Well, first we thank you for this day for blessing us to be here tonight on this Lord's Day to not Lord's Day on this Wednesday night to study your word together. Well, just refresh us by your word as we study these uh, last few chapters in this great book that we've been in uh, for the last uh, few months. Lord, also pray, we pray tonight for Mr. Lord. She's here with us. She's having pain and discomfort in her leg. Lord, just touch her and heal her. Um, and when she goes back to the doctor later on this month, that they're able to help her to find uh, relief uh, for her uh, leg pain. We thank you for giving her gospel perseverance you know to come uh, to church uh, despite uh, her pain Lord and just be with her and Lord we pray for brother Harvey he was admitted to the emergency room today he's having problems with his bowels he's going to have to have surgery on them Lord we pray that you be with him and relieve his comfort uh, discomfort that he feels in his body uh, until they find a time for him to have surgery Lord that you just be with him strengthen him encourage him in the spirit we're going to go check him out tomorrow when he gets a room but Lord just be with him and empower him and strengthen him Lord God to to persevere through uh, these sicknesses Lord um, just be with all who are watching tonight on our Facebook and those who are in here with us and Lord just bless our time in your word and just uh, strengthen us and encourage us in Christ's name amen Amen. So chapter 32 is the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses. So in, in addition to uh, writing the law or reading or reciting the law every seven years, uh, this song uh, that Moses wrote is also a great part of uh, Israel's uh, history and is also a witness against uh, Israel and so we're just going to look at this song in in sections uh, verses 1 through 4 uh, give an introduction where the first two words he says here is to give ear O heavens and I will speak and hear O earth the words of my mouth that my teaching drop as the rain my speech 
distilled as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers of the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. So this psalm here, I'm sorry, this song or psalm, you might as well say that. Moses began by asking for attention. And not only from Israel, from, but from all of creation, because he says what? Give ear, O heavens, and hear, O earth. So he's, he's calling all, all of creation to give ear to uh, his words. And he came to proclaim the name of the Lord and asking to ascribe greatness to his name. And he gives praise to God's name, both for who he is. So in these first few verses, we see some of the attributes of God. What do we learn about God in this song? Number one, he says he is the rock. He says he is the rock. Okay, so God is not he is not on, not is not that he is a rock. But he is the rock that's in verse 4 okay he is the rock he is the um, David said in Psalm 18 and 2 the Lord is my rock and my shield okay what does it mean by a rock a rock is something that is steady it is firm it is basically immovable we're not talking about like a stone or a pebble we're talking about a rock is it's, it's something that represents firmness. It represents a foundation. It represents something that is that is stable, something that is steadfast, something that is immovable. And that's who Moses is 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 calling to Israel to look to God as, you know, my rock. We're going to sing that song Sunday. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, greatest treasure of my longing soul so God is our rock he's our he's our safety he's our security he's our foundation so that's what we think about with rock so first he says God is rock and also he says righteous is he righteous and upright is he okay so that that's at the uh, end of the fourth verse so that's who God is. So when we think about the attributes of God, we think about it in two ways. We think about who God is and also what God does. Okay, because God does what he is. He acts according to his ways. So that's what we think about when we think about the attributes of God, who he is. That's why I always ask, you know, the question, you know, when we say a person says, I believe in God. You ask, who is God? You know, what 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 does God do? What has God done? You know, not just about necessarily doing things for you because he does do that, but he does more than that. It's not just, yeah, God has blessed me. He's made a way out of no way. Yeah, he's done all those things. But that doesn't totally encapsulate what God has done. So he's rock and he is righteous and upright. That means God doesn't do any wrong. He's upright. Everything that God does is right. No one can ever accuse God of, of, of wrongdoing. No one can. And then not only who he is, but what he does. 
His work is perfect. And all his ways are justice. We see that in uh, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. That justice means doing what is right. God is just. Everything he does is just. It is right. It is justice. And he's perfect. God doesn't make mistakes. He's perfect in everything he does. He's perfect in the way he created the heavens and earth. God created a certain order in creation that was perfect. God created distinctions in creation which are perfect. God created man in his image and said it is good. Everything that God created says good. His ways are perfect. There's nothing imperfect about God and if there's nothing imperfect about God that that means there's nothing imperfect about what he's done in creation. Now man is sinful because of man's choice. But God is still perfect and his ways are still perfect. Then he goes to the accusation in verses 5 and 6. He says, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who brought you? Has he not made you and established you? So Moses is speaking about rebellious Israel. That they have corrupted themselves. Remember the problem is never with God. It is always with man. It is not God who corrupts people. It's people who are corrupt themselves. God doesn't corrupt people. People corrupt themselves. So that's why he says you have corrupted yourselves. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. Then he says, is he not your father who brought you? Has he not made you and established you? Their sin is even more foolish. He says, oh, foolish and unwise people. And why does he call them that? Because their sin is foolish and unwise in light of what God has done for them. Think about it. We've gone over all the things that God did for Israel in the wilderness. Remember, their feet didn't grow tired. Their sandals, their clothes didn't tear. Those 40 years, he gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. He guided them with a, a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He dwelt among them uh, with his presence uh, in the ark of the, the tabernacle. They had the presence of God with them. They they had everything. They were God's chosen people. He chose them out of all the nations of the world because he set his love on them. So it is foolish and unwise to rebel against a God who does this. That's why I say, is he not your father who brought you? Has he not made you and established you? But yet it is foolish and unwise to rebel against the God who did so much for them. When we rebel against God, when sinful men, when unbelievers rebel against God, they're being foolish. Because even God provides for the unjust. God provides for the wicked. God provides for the ungodly. God, through common grace, blesses unbelievers 
The scripture says he's re- he reigns on the just as well as the unjust. He causes it to rain on the just as well as the unjust. The unjust, the unbelievers, God still blesses them. God allows the wicked to prosper. We looked at that when we looked at Psalm 10 last week, uh, that response of reading that, you know, God does, the, the, the wicked do prosper. But they still rebel against God. And then verse 7 through 14, we're not going to read all this, but basically Moses recounts God's past faithfulness to Israel. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. Then he talked about Adam. He said the Lord's the portion. The Lord's portion is his people. He talked about Jacob. He kept him as the apple of his eyes. The eagle stirs up his nest. Hovers over his young, spreading out his wings, carrying them on his wings. So the Lord alone led him. God did all this. He, so he told them to remember the days of old. So remember, this psalm, this song was to be a witness against a rebellious Israel. So God reminded Israel of God's uh, goodness to them. Now, why did he do this why did God do this it was to bring great conviction of sin but also to remind them of God's love and grace so that remembering does two things it convicts them they're being so rebellious so what does God do reminds them it's like you remind your child when your child is rebelling against you you remind them of the things that you've done for them as parents. How you've taken care of them. How you raised them. How you provided for them. How you care for them. How you love them. And how they shouldn't rebel against you because you've done all those things. That's what Moses is doing with Israel. He's reminding them of God's faithfulness to them in light of their rebellion. So as to bring conviction of sin, but also to remind them of God's love that they can return to when they do rebel. Then verse 15 through 18. (laughs) Basically, Israel responded to God's kindness with apostasy. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Now, Jeshurun is a uh, title for Israel. It means uh, in Hebrew, the upright one. So Jeshurun, Israel, grew fat and kicked. This is verse 15. He says, you grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. You grew fat, you grew stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him. Deuteronomy 32. And scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons not to God. It's Deuteronomy 32 chain. 
to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Man. So how did Israel respond to God's kindness that Moses reminded them of? They responded in rebellion. They responded in idolatry or with idolatry. This is the heart of sinful man. Despite God's goodness, man still goes into idolatry. Still goes into apostasy, departing from the faith. And look how they did it. They grew fat. They got real big. They grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then, after they got all this, they did what? They forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They, they scoffed, they mocked God. They provoked him to jealousy. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods or foreign gods. With abominations, they pro provoked him to anger. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we saw idolatry as the key sin uh, of Israel. So they did all this. But look at what verse 17 says about these gods. He says they sacrificed. This is what ESV says. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently. Whom your fathers had never dreaded. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. They were false gods. They had no real existence. They have no track record. They're, they're, they're new. In other words. You're going to worship these idols. that have done nothing. And forsake the God who's done everything. For you. Ouch. Do y'all know that the idols that we serve don't do anything for us? I talk about it all the time. People have identity idolatry. They, they worship their so-called identity. They worship their disability. They worship their mental health diagnosis. They worship their so-called uh, sexuality. You know, whether they're, quote, transgender or non-binary or lesbian or homosexual or queer. You know, people worship those identities. They worship their personal preferred pronouns and, and, they, and, they, and they worship the right to kill their babies in their wombs. And they, all, these, all these identities they, they worship. But you know what? They don't do anything. They can't do anything. Because they're not real. That's the thing about idols. Idols are not real. They're, they're fashioned. They're images. You know, people make them. But they're not real because what? They can't do anything. Idols can do nothing. God told Israel that. God mocked Israel because of these idols. They can do 
nothing. They can't do anything. They're impotent. They are, they are hopeless. They are helpless. They cannot save the people who worship them. And that's what we must know about this. And that's what God was telling them. They sacrificed the demons not to God. To gods they did not know. They knew God because God was in their midst. They didn't know these idols. These idols are empty and they can do nothing for them. But yet they still. Um, they still try. They still try. Uh, look at Isaiah 44. This is one passage where. Wonderful. Looking at beginning at verse seven, this is God uh, mocking Judah about the idols that they make. And think about the idols we have in our culture: social media, sex, human sexuality, um, the right to murder your babies. All, all, all these uh, Republican, Democrat, political party, political affiliation. You know, all these idols that we have. Isaiah 44, 7. Yeah, 44, uh, Dolores, and 7. Man, God gives a great description here of the, the foolishness of idols, the worthlessness of them. Isaiah 44, looking at verse 7. God says who then is like me that's a rhetorical question that means no one let him proclaim it let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come yes let them foretell what will come only God knew the future only God could tell do not tremble do not be afraid did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago you are my witnesses is there any God beside me? No. There is no other what? Rock. No other God. No other rock. I know not one. Didn't we just read Moses saying, praising God for being the rock? It continues. Look at verse 9. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who will speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do not, people who do that rather will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be drawn down to terror and shame. That means those who make these idols will be drawn down to terror and shame. They, they will come to nothing. And then he goes on to describe the, the process of doing all of this. The ironsmith or the blacksmith takes a cutting tool 
and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with the compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks, bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. So that's what man does. He builds an idol and fashions it for himself, and he does what? He worships it. But that is all he's doing. So God was telling Israel, Continuing, verse 21, remember these things, O, o Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten about me. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like the mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So he was telling Israel that he is the one who redeems them, not the idol that this man made it is God who redeems his people so back to our passage in Deuteronomy we see that these idols don't do anything and that's what Moses was telling them you're going to worship this idol with all that God has done for you and what is God's reaction 19 through 27 the withdrawal from Israel God withdraws his presence and punishes them and when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them and I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. So when we worship other gods, we provoke the jealousy of God. Now God doesn't get jealous like a girlfriend gets jealous with a boyfriend or a husband gets jealous with his wife. It's not that kind of jealousy. It is a, it is a righteous jealousy because we are forsaking God. When we worship idols, when we go to idols instead of trusting in the living God, he gets jealous. He got jealous with Israel because they, God is a jealous God. And so we must see that when we're looking at worshiping these idols, like people worship their identity. So, man, he goes on to say what he would do to Israel. 
burn them to the lowest hell, consume the earth with their uh, increase, you know, bring fire upon them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction, sent against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents, of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside, terror within. That's what God will do. He will heap disasters upon them. When God hides his faith on, face from his people, guess what? Disaster comes upon them. Why? Because they have forsaken them. When God's people forsake him, he withdraws the intimacy of his presence from them. Then it says, the Lord makes his case against Israel, verses 28 through 43. They are a nation void of counsel. There's any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Man, why is Moses saying that? If people just consider what would happen if you refused. Oh, consider your end, Israel, if you rebel against God. People, when they rebel against God willfully, they don't consider their end. Why? It feels fun. Rebelling against God, disobeying God, not obeying his commands. It feels good, doesn't it? Sin feels good. It feels good. But the consequences don't. That's the deception. The deception is that when you're sinning, when you're living in sin, when you're actively living in sin, it feels so good to, to, to your flesh. But people don't consider the end. What happens if I continue in this rebellion? What happens if I continue in this unrepentant sin what happens if I keep disobeying God what happens if I keep turning away from God and turn away from his, his word and turn away from his church people don't consider that and that's what Moses was saying here oh that they were wise that they understood this that they would consider their latter end discern it how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock has sold them and the Lord has surrounded them? For their rock is not like our rock. The rock of the pagans is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges. Man, God is making a plea to Israel. The Lord will judge his people, it says later on down here, and have compassion on his servants. But look at verse 39. I, I, I like this part here. It says, it's in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Well, 30, 36, the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no remaining bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See? 
Your gods led you nowhere. Your gods didn't help you. Your idols don't do anything for you. Your idols are empty. Where are they, Israel? And when you're hungry, where are your idols? They're not anywhere to be found. He says, let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. But guess what? They're not. These false gods, these false idols that we, we look to, they won't protect us. It's like having false friends. When it really comes down to it, are they truly your friends? Are they truly going to be there for you? Are they truly going to help? Idols would be the same way. In your time of greatest need, your social media, you know, people do this when, they, when they're in distress or going to surgery or something tragic happens, they'll, they'll post it to social media and they'll probably get tons of comments. You know, praying for them, which is fine. People say, you know, praying for you, so forth and so on. I'm sorry this happened to you on social media. That's fine. But how many of those people will come to the hospital? How many, people, how many of those people come visit you at home when you're recovering? Think about that. You make it a thousand comments, but how many of those thousand people are going to come visit you in the hospital? Why? They can't ultimately be there. Our idols can't ultimately be there for us. All the people that follow us on social media are not going to always be there. But yet people look at social media as an idol. They look at that for their identity. One thing they can't do is take away the pain and suffering that you feel. That is only something that God can do. So God says what? Verse 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives and the long haired heads of the enemy. Vengeance belongs to God. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So God will ultimately defend his people. And then Moses gets to the end in verse 44 where he gives encouragement to Israel. He came with Joshua and spoke all these words of the song in the hearing of the people. He finished in saying, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. 
all the words of this law for it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life and by this your word shall prolong by this word rather you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess one of the greatest lies that Satan has convinced us as believers and people is that it is a futile thing it's a foolish thing it's a small thing to serve God and to obey his word Satan will convince people that it doesn't matter that it's not important that it's futile like man ain't no use of serving God and obeying him I want to go out and do my own thing I don't I don't I don't I don't need to do that sometimes you can see that those who are against God are prospering more than those who are serving him but we must understand that it is nothing futile it is nothing meaningless or hopeless about serving God we look at the wicked and see them prospering and say man I'm up here serving God I'm up here obeying God and they seem to be having it better in life than me remember what I always say this world is the best that it gets for them you know I sent that text message out I think that was this morning that, that quote from uh Charles Spurgeon that I sent out uh, earlier today that, that kind of reminds me uh, of that uh, quote no Christian enjoys comfort when his eyes are fixed on vanity vanity is the same as something that's futile something that's empty something that's meaningless something that, that, that doesn't ultimately uh, mean anything He finds no satisfaction unless his soul is quickened in the ways of God. That's where we find our satisfaction. That's what God, that's what Moses is telling Israel. He's encouraging them. He says, set your hearts on all the words that I testify among you. That means set your mind on what I just told you. Focus on that. And Spurgeon continues, the world may win happiness elsewhere, but he, the man uh, who follows after God, cannot. I do not blame ungodly men for rushing to their pleasures. Why should I? Let them have their fill. That means the ungodly. This is all they have to enjoy. This world, these pleasures of this world is all they have to enjoy. A converted wife who despaired of her husband was always very kind to him. For she said, I fear that this is the only world in which he would be happy. And therefore, I have made up my mind to make him as happy as I can in it. Christians must seek their delights in a higher sphere than the empty activities of sinful enjoyments of the world. That's basically what Moses is telling his people, God's people. Set your hearts on all the words. It is not a futile thing for you. Hey, the wicked may prosper. Continue to serve God. People who hate God may seem like they're getting away with it in this world. Guess what? You continue to serve God and obey him. Because it's not futile. It's not empty to serve God. And then God gives his final command to Moses here. Verses 48 through 52. That very day the Lord said, spoke to Moses. Okay. This is where Moses goes up to the mountain and looks over into the promised land. Remember, Moses can't go. 
because he's going to remind him of that. So Moses came, I'm sorry, the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day and said, go up to the mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho. So it was a little walk he had to take. It wasn't like just going right up a mountain. And view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith or broke covenant with me in the midst of the people in Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh when he remember, struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. So that's what happened. Moses was able to see the land. This was his last act of, uh, you know, at 120 years old. He died at the summit of the mountain. He died on the mountaintop. But God was merciful to Moses to let him look over into the land. Because he didn't have to let him do that. But Moses' anger cost him going over into the promised land. But Moses still counted him on the faithful. And this is a good principle to learn from this good gospel principle. Despite our sins, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll reach the promised land. Remember, the promised land in the Old Testament is a picture of heaven. Okay, that's what the promised land points to. That's why in most translations, the promised land has a capital P and a capital L. Okay, the promised land that we're going we're gonna to start in Joshua, you know, next week. Uh, the promised land is a picture of heaven, our promised land, a land, a place that is prepared for us, just as God had prepared this land for Israel to go in and to dispossess those nations. But for us, Christ has made the way for us to go enter into the promised land despite our sins. Moses didn't get to make it to this promised land. He did make it to heaven. But God was still gracious to Moses to even let him look in. But for us who believe in the Lord, we won't just be able to look in. We'll be able to actually enter into the rest of the Lord. So this leads us to chapter 33. We're not going to look at all these. These are just uh, Moses giving his blessings to the 12 excuse me, tribes. He's blessing them before his death, just as Jacob did. You find this in Genesis 49. Before Jacob died, he blessed his 12 sons. Now Moses is giving his blessings to uh, Israel. So that's what we see here in this uh, chapter. Chapter. 
those blessings. So now we're going to skip down to um, chapter 34. And this is when Moses dies. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab, remember, because God had told him that, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. That's a Pisgah, Alabama. That's what it's named after. It is a Mount Pisgah Baptist Church, or Mount Pisgah. You, you'll see, you know, if you notice, there are a lot of churches named after some of these mountains. Like you got Mount Sinai's, you got Mount Nebo's. You have Mount Pisgah churches. You know, you got Mount Zion's. You know, you got a lot of churches named after these mountains in the Bible. <laughs> anyway, which is across the Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. So he was showing them the land where the tribes were going to be distributed. And all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. So Israel was camped on the, in the plains of Moab. And, you know, they were in the valley. God took Moses up to the mountain. He climbed to Mount Nebo so he could see the promised land. Again, this was God's grace to Moses. Though he couldn't set foot in it, God allowed him to see it. And Moses stood on what is now the modern nation of Jordan. Jordan is in the uh, Middle East. And it borders Israel. So where he's standing where um, Nebo is, is in the country of Jordan. If you look on, at a map of the Middle East, you see the country of Jordan. That's where, that's where Moses was standing looking over into the promised land. And then the Lord said to him in verse 4, this is the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So God kept his promise from Abraham centuries before. We see God fulfilling his promise that he made, that covenant promise that he made to Abraham. The book of Deuteronomy began with them in the wilderness, and now it ends with them at the cusp of going into the promised land. So Moses saw the whole land. So I will give it to your descendants. God has swore to give it to descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what he's going to do. So this again was a bittersweet moment for Moses. I've caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over. I'm sure Moses, you know, heart was thrilled to see the promised land because, hey, he led these people for 40 years to, to, to be able to get to it. So I'm sure there was some thrill in his heart. But... I'm sure also he felt in his heart that it was his own sin that caused him to not enter in. There's a good principle in this. I was reading 
uh, A.W. Tozer said this in, in, in so many words, that people go to hell. God, you know, people. Some, some people ask the question, oh, why would a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell. That's what happens. You can't accuse God of that. People choose to go to hell. They want to go to hell. Because they rebel against God. I'm trying to find that quote. I think it's by uh I think it's by A.W. Tozer. Um people they, they choose, they choose their rebellion. They choose to rebel against God. They choose to disobey God. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, all God does in the end with people is give them what they most want. That's what he does. And John Piper said this, the person who rejects God does not know the real horrors of hell. This may be because he does not believe hell exists or maybe because he convinces himself that it will be tolerable, tolerably preferable to heaven. But when he believes or does not believe, when he chooses against God, he is wrong about God and about hell. He is not at that point preferring the real hell over the real God. He is blind to both. When a person chooses against God, they in de facto or in fact choose hell. Or when he jokes about preferring hell with friends over heaven with boring religious people, he does not know what he is doing. But when he dies, he will be shocked beyond words. So people have that choice Moses knew that his choice caused him to go into the promised land people who choose to rebel against God guess what they are putting themselves in great peril of missing out on the promised land again Moses was counted among the faithful but yet he still did not get that blessing of the promised land because he did what? He chose to rebel against God in front of the people by striking uh, the rock. And in this instance, Moses was so close, but he was yet so far away. Sure, he felt inward pain for that. But Moses can take joy in the fact that he did lead them into the promised land. Mm-hmm. And then the death of Moses, verses 5 through 8. So Moses, the servant of God, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. He was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So he was still supernaturally strong. 
even at age 120. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. You know, they, that's what they normally did for their leaders. They, they mourned 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses had ended. So Moses died. He was the servant of the Lord. And that's what scripture says about him. That's what we must remember that Moses was the servant of the Lord. And that is a very precious thing. That's why I said the, the scriptures don't condemn Moses to hell because of his sin. Because God was still gracious to him. But it says Moses the servant of the Lord. So he was he died a servant. He spent his last 40 years as a servant of the Lord. He served the Lord faithfully. He was truly a servant of the Lord all the way until the end. Even when Moses knew that he wasn't going to the promised land, guess what? He still served the Lord. He died just as God had promised. Just as God had promised. And then the last part, I mean, he was buried, of course. Joshua's leadership began at verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. The people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of the Lord. Now, God did raise up a prophet uh, like Moses, and that was uh, Christ, a, a greater than Moses. But at, at this time, up until this time, there was no prophet like Moses. In other words, you know, Joshua was a capable leader, but it did not diminish Moses' legacy. Now, there's some things that made Moses unique. Number one, he saw God face to face. He had personal intimacy with God. Moses was unique in the number and kinds of signs and wonders that, that he did. Remember, it was Moses God told him to stretch out his rod to part the Red Sea. It was the plagues that God worked through Moses to, to put on Egypt. It was the water coming from the rock. God used Moses to do. So Moses, all the signs and wonders, and the mighty power. He was unique in power and authority with which he had the nation of Israel. Guess who fulfilled all this? Christ. Christ is God in the flesh. Christ knew God face to face. He knew God the Father face to face because he was the son. He is the son of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has an intimate relationship with the Father. Christ performed all signs and wonders. You read in the Gospels. He, he performed all these miracles to prove that he was God and that he was sovereign over creation. That's why Moses points to Christ. You know, we saw in that song, Christ the true and better, this past Sunday. That's what it's about. All the the shadows and types, all the people in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. 
He was the greater Adam. He was the greater Moses. He was the greater David. He was the greater Isaac, the greater sacrifice. He was the greater prophet, priest, and king. So Christ did all these things. He had mighty power because he's all powerful because he's God. And there's no prophet that was risen like Moses in Israel. Now there were greater rulers over Israel than Moses, greater leaders, greater prophets, and greater priests. But before Christ, there were none besides Moses. Moses served as the great prophet, priest, and king, ruler over God's people. And all that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how this book ends, with those confirmations. So when we look at Joshua, the first chapter next week, we will see what entails this great people. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for blessing us to finish this book. We've studied through it for the last few months. I pray, Lord, that you've refreshed all of us, that you helped all of us, not, not just with head knowledge, but also heart knowledge. Help us, Lord, to apply what we've learned to our lives, to continue to trust in you as our faithful prophet, priest, and king, to trust in you to bring us into the promised land that you have prepared for us, Lord. Just bless us for the rest of the week. Again, remember uh, Brother Harvey and Mr. Lois and anyone else in our congregation who's dealing with sickness, illness, uh, despair, that you may lift us up, Lord, by your spirit. Help us to continue to love one another and to pray for one another. In Christ's name I pray, amen.